Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thank you for gathering here this morning and for bringing the church into this YMCA gymnasium. It's a great joy to be able to worship King Jesus with you all, and it's a joy to be able to open up uh, God's word uh, with you all this morning. And so if we've never had the opportunity to meet, my name is Jamie. It's my great privilege to serve here as one of the pastors. And this morning we are continuing our series through the great book of Ecclesiastes, this wonderful book, this challenging book. Uh, The idea here is helping us make sense of a complex world. And so if you're new to Crosspoint and even just coming into this series, or if you've missed some of it, just the overall theme here is there's this pursuit of like, how do we find meaning and, and purpose? And there's a writer here, there's a teacher that many believe is Solomon, who's reflecting back on his life. And it's just like, okay, I pursued this and I got all the things that I wanted he was very very successful in almost every area of life and yet he's like it's seemingly just vanity it's the language here is like it's a vapor or it's a mist like you reach for it you want to hold on to and it slips through your fingers and what was true for him I think is true for all of us here this morning that there's the things that we might acquire we get we achieve our goals things that come together wonderfully sometimes we're like was that it uh, because yeah, that was amazing for a moment, like a kid on Christmas Day that is with great enthusiasm tears into the, the presents and unwraps it, and then uh, you know a couple hours later is like, I'm bored, right? And we're like, you just got all this amazing stuff, but we quickly just want to move on, and there's this call here, how do we find purpose and meaning? And so this morning, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes, we've got a good bit of ground to cover which is, it's always frightening when the preacher says that, right? We've got a good bit of ground to cover. But Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to finish out chapter 5 and then look at chapter 6. And so it'll be really helpful for you to have this in front of you. So if you brought a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. If you did not bring a Bible, there's paperback ones on the back tables there. Grab one of those. Turn to page 619. Ecclesiastes can be a little tricky to find. There's no shame in using the table of contents, however you need to get there. Or get your phone out, go to cpwp.life, swipe over to the second card that says message notes. What is on the screen this morning, as far as well as the text that we'll be looking at, will be there. You can take notes, follow along that way. So as you're turning there, here is what we're getting into. If you're like, hey, what's, what are these verses about? What's the, some of the big idea? What we're going to be confronted with, challenged with, but ultimately encouraged in is to not find life in the abundance of the wealth or possessions that we have. And so I have the the joy and the privilege, but also the the challenge, like there's a weightiness of this, to talk about money in the context of the church. And so here's what I need you to know. For one, we didn't strategically pick this and we're like, okay, well, when can we talk about money? We're journeying through books of the Bible, as we regularly do. And the text here talks this morning about money, or it has some perspective for us. It's not a sermon because, hey, you know, we need to talk about the budget or any of that, by God's grace, doing well. Like, we're just in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and chapter 6 this morning, and the reality is this. It says a lot, not just to the people back then, but to you and me as we're here this morning, regardless of where you are on sort of the economic spectrum, the reality is money can get a hold of our hearts and distract us and divert us from the worship that God deserves, and it can rob us of life. And so God, in his grace and in his mercy, he cares so much for you that he will repeatedly throughout the scriptures, it's one of the topics Jesus talked about more than almost anything, is the grip that money gets a hold of, how it gets a hold of us. All right, so this is not some sort of soapbox issue for me to go in. This is like, hey, we're, we're in the Bible, we're journeying through, here's where we are this morning. And so I want you to think about this as we get into this passage this morning. The great reformer, the theologian Martin Luther said this, and I thought this is a helpful way to think about it as we dive into this topic this morning. He begins to liken our life where we sometimes lose sight 
of the fact that we are sojourners, we are exiles, we are on a journey. This world is not our home in the sense of just the here and now. Like one day it's all going to be remade, but the things here, they're temporal, they're fleeting. It's what Ecclesiastes has been teaching us. Look at the words of Martin Luther in this quote. He says this, Therefore, we must use all these things upon earth in no, on, no other way, so think about everything that you have, than as a guest who travels through the land and comes to a hotel where he must lodge overnight. He takes only food and lodging from the host, and he says not that the property of the host belongs to him. Just so should we also treat our temporal possessions as if they were not ours, and enjoy only so much of them as we need to nourish the body and then help our neighbors with the balance. Thus, the life of the Christian is only a lodging for the night, since we have no continuing city but must journey on to heaven where the Father is. That's what you're made for. That's what I'm made for, to be in the presence of God, to commune with God. And there are good gifts that the Lord has given to us, and we can enjoy those. We're going to get into that this morning. But I want to ask you this as we get into it, in light of what Luther is saying here, like think about this for a moment, like how's your hotel room? Which is sort of an odd question maybe to, to think about, but if you think of that imagery, right, you go to a hotel, right, um, I admit like it's, it's fun to go to a hotel and kind of see and you, you look, you're like, oh, this is cool, look at they have this, can I take the robe? I don't think I'm supposed to, right, like all that kind of stuff, but you look at it. And it's like, wow, this is great, and you can enjoy it. Maybe you've traveled this summer, or you're about to travel, and you go to a place, all right? And that is good, and you're to enjoy it and celebrate it and all that. But if you start posting on social media about, hey, I'm thinking about knocking this wall down. I want to open it up from the mini bar over to, the, to where the bed is, and I'm going to rearrange. I'm getting a new couch brought in. I'm doing, redoing the flooring. People would look at you, rightly so. It's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you're checking out in two days. Like, what in the world is happening? And it's that sort of confusion, though, that exists when we sort of just think, I got to hoard this, I got to keep this, I got to get mine, I've got to make sure, because there's this pursuit of like, it's right here and now that is all that matters. And God in his grace says, you're viewing the world like, like it's this, you know, you need to view it more like as a hotel room, like you're, you're passing through, God has provided, you can enjoy it. Some of you may even have a nicer hotel room than, than others. Great, nothing wrong with that. But it's not your ultimate home. 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10 says this, but godliness, and that's what we get into this morning, with contentment is great gain. To pair those two together, a pursuit of righteousness and holiness, this contentment, and Lord, what you've given me, the circumstance of life, the blessings, the things that I have that others may not, and the things that I, you know, don't have that others may have, and all of it, like, I'm content. You've given me your son. What else do I need? Is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Now again, he's not saying being rich is a problem. He's saying the desire to be rich. Into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people. The idea of like, it's like taking you underwater and drowning you. All right, That plunge people into ruin and destruction. And this is where this gets misquoted all the time. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Money is not the root of all kinds of evils. It's the love of money, the over-desire for it, the pursuit of it, thinking that it's ultimate. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is not insignificant. It can get a hold of your heart and in my heart. The discontentment can creep into a point that it doesn't just disrupt a little bit of your life. It actually takes you away from the faith. 
So why would we want to move towards these things and move away from God? God has much more for us. So let's look at these verses in Ecclesiastes that will challenge us, but I believe ultimately will encourage us. So let me read Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. I'll read through verse 17. And I want to just lay out for you, just as the writer here begins, the teacher here begins to sort of share over and over and over again, here's a problem that comes when you pursue money and wealth. Not that money or wealth is the problem, but the desire for it, the pursuit of it, sacrificing everything for it. Beginning in verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. All right. There's some problems here that the teacher has for us, some things that we need to wrestle with. Not just for Solomon, not just for the teacher and what he had, but for what you and I in this world that we inhabit, the things that want to draw us away from God. And one of the things that we see right out of the gate, and if you remember last week, it was this call to gather as God's people to worship. And so it's almost at the end of verse 7. It's like there's this worship service that's concluded. Now everybody is exiting from the church, exiting from the temple. They're entering back out into the world and right away bombarded, trying to be discipled by a narrative that says, all right, that was fine. You had your nice little worship service. But now it's up to you. Like you've got to prove, you've got to earn, you've got to gather, you've got to hoard, you've got to keep it to yourself. And what the writer tells us here in verses 8 to 9, for one, that the love of money, this over-pursuit of it, actually leads to injustice in the world. Did you see that? Did you hear that language again there in uh, verse 8? If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. He's not saying be indifferent to it or don't care, but like this will happen. We see this. There are systemic problems that exist in the world. They have for all time. They continue to exist, all right? But we need to be aware of that. We should fight against that. It says, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. So on the one hand, some commentators, interpreters think, okay, it's sort of just talking about the kind of the red tape of bureaucracy, right? Maybe there are funds to help the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, but like there's just layer upon layer upon layer, and eventually it's just like, I don't know, the funds that were there were actually not handled well. They didn't get to where they were supposed to go. The other language, another possibility here is that the, the word there to kind of watch, it's this, uh, it's this idea sort of, you watch out for your friends. So this official's like, hey, buddy, I'll take care of you. Sort of like lobbying that begins to happen, right? Like, hey, I've got this thing. Can we add this to the bill? You do this. Scratch my back. I'll scratch yours kind of thing that's happening. 
And all the while that takes place and you have people that are, that are acquiring more, the rich are getting richer, so to speak, and there are very real people with real issues and real needs and things and they're just being left by the wayside. And it's this love of money that can cause that because we get so consumed by it, we forget about those that may not have what we have. We tend to forget about the injustice. We fail to see the opportunities to press in over and over again in the scriptures. God's heart is for the poor, for the marginalized. That's why he gives instructions. If you ever read through the Old Testament, you're like, what are all these laws for? Pay attention to how many of them, though, are about God's protection of those who have no protection. So when you go and you are harvesting your crop, don't glean all the way to the edges. Why? So that the sojourner, the exile, the poor, the marginalized could come along and they could, might actually be able to gather God's heart is for the poor but this over desire for money leads to injustice and when that grips your heart and my heart we fail to be the people of God that he's called us to be to help other people verse 10 tells us this all right you'll never actually have enough like that's another problem the second problem I put before you is that as you look back at verse 10 he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income this also is vanity Vapor, mist, elusive. Found this quote in a commentary in the book of Ecclesiastes by Daniel Aiken. Very convicting. He said this in light of verse 10. He says, think back. There was a time in your life when you would have jumped at the opportunity to have the income, the family, and house that you presently have, but now it's not enough. Think about that. Like how often we're like, oh man, if I could just have this or get this or ha have this. And maybe over time, like God has given you some of those things and it's like, yeah, 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 that, that was great. But the luster of it begins to wear off. We're like, ah, but what's the new thing? What is the, the thing? And the contentment is not there. We lose sight of all that God has given to us. That doesn't mean ambition and drive or new things are in and of themselves bad, but how often are we dis? Content. He says this as well, wealth, third problem, wealth draws people out of the woodwork. Look at verse 11, I think this is really interesting. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? It's like, hey, like you start to acquire more, there's gonna be more people that are now just gonna be hitting you up, kind of looking for, like, can you help me with this? Can you pick up the tab, all right? You're at the restaurant and they're kind of just looking at you awkwardly, you know, and, and like, Hey, you make more than me. You picking this up, right? Like, there can be that sort of thing that happens. This is a big deal for Solomon. I mean, 1 Kings chapter 4 records this. Just look at all the people that he had to take care of, all right? It says this, Solomon's provision for one day. He's just talking about the, the meals, like, kind of in his house of what he was responsible for. And I had people to help with this. But Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle. 20. A hundred sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, whatever they are, and fat and fowl. All right? What's for dinner? Some fat and fowl. It sounds great, right? This is a lot of food. Now, I know we don't necessarily, I didn't know what his core was, all right, 30 cores, but that's roughly, all right, I did the math, if, if Google treated, got this all correct, 1,374 gallons, all right? That's a lot. A lot of food. A lot of people coming to Solomon being like, hey, like, Hey, hook me up. Here, I, I need this. Well, that's, that's a real issue. That's a real problem. There's complexity to it. Sometimes you're walking around being like, oh, if I only had this. Like, well, may, maybe. But have you ever asked somebody who has a lot? Maybe there's, there's some complexity to it as well. So there's a real issue there. He's like, don't be naive about this. Verse 12, he reminds us that 
even just getting a good night of rest is going to be a struggle. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer who eats little or much. So he might get a lot to eat, might get a little to eat, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Why? Well, for one, it could just be those that are laboring, they're physically exerting themselves, and maybe they come in, there's not a lot of food that day, maybe there's a good bit, whatever it happens to be, maybe week to week that that is changing, but it's like, hey, at the end of the day, just put in a good day's work and can rest and just know, like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep well. I did what God called me to do. But there's also something that can happen not only you could take it just at the very physical level of like, my stomach is full, I'm living a sedentary life now, all right? So I'm going to bed with a, with a really full stomach. I overate or I overdrank and, and I didn't really exercise and I'm not doing any sort of work that, that requires any sort of physical labor and I just can't fall asleep. And included in that probably is just the anxiety where you thought this would go away if I got more. And the reality is you now have more responsibility. There's more things that are weighing on your mind and on your heart and you just can't turn it off. It's like, let's be aware of this. It doesn't satisfy. It will not ultimately produce the life and the joy that you want. And tells us this in verse 13 to 16, riches ultimately that they can't be kept. Look with me at these words again there was a great grievous evil all right and I hope maybe you're seeing this sort of language so even back in verse 8 you know it talks about if you see and then there's a grievous evil that I've seen and there's this these sort of reflections it's one who is dialed in who's paying attention willing to do the reflective work of of examining his life and the world that he inhabits not from a place of judgment but of like we got to be honest about this it's one of the great gifts of the scriptures to us that sort of forces us. I love preaching through books of the Bible, not because I'm like, I can't wait to talk about money, but because we need to talk about these things. And God in his grace has us here this morning. And so the writer, the teacher looks out, says, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. If we just stop there for a moment, maybe a way to think about it is this. You and I were meant to be the deliverer, never the destination. You're meant to be the deliverer. God gives you good things, and yes, you keep some of that and you use some of that, all right? But you're not meant to be the destination. It isn't supposed to just come to you and stop, and this is mine, and everybody else butt out, and I'm just going to keep this, I'm going to keep acquiring, and I'm going to keep doing more. That's why Jesus warns the the man. He tells the the parable of, I'm just going to build bigger barns, and Jesus is like, you fool. Tonight, your very life will be taken from you. You're not meant to hoard it. And so there's this language that you keep taking in, you keep taking in, it ultimately is going to destroy you. You're meant, you're, you're intended to like help pass it on, to be a blessing, to be about the flourishing of the community that you've been, been put in. So he reminds us, riches can't be kept. You're the deliverer, you're not the destination. And he continues, and those riches... Even, and then while you have them, he said, it's possible that they're, they're lost in a bad venture. Like you can have tons of it and you make a bad decision, make a bad investment, and suddenly it's gone. You thought, oh, this is going to be good. They told me to invest in this. This bubble will never burst. This thing will have it, right? And he then is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And this begins to weigh on him. I had a lot hoarding it it went away I don't even have anything to give my own kids and so it reminds us verse 15 as he came from his mother's womb he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand this also 
It's a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Two times in that short section, I look out, it's a grievous evil. Thinking it's going to last. Thinking it's going to be ultimate. And the description we get here in verse 17, I think the the sixth problem I would put before you that we see is ultimately, it sort of results in it feels like hell. Verse 17, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, and in anger. One of the ways a separation from God is spoken of is a darkness. To be separated from God is hell. Darkness leads to disintegration. Things cannot grow. Things cannot flourish. And so the picture here by verse 17 is a man who maybe has acquired a lot, but at the end of the day is in isolation, is cut off from other people, is cut off from his God, has all his things, all right, but is miserable. If you think like Christmas, like Scrooge or whatever kind of thing that's been embodied in sort of pop culture down through the years, there's always this showcasing. We're like, does it really lead to joy and to fulfillment? I was driving down uh, Lakemont this week. Literally, it was coming up the, in the light at Palmer here right before the YMCA, heading over to, to the branch, and this, this song came, came on. Um, uh, and I thought, man, this song, even the lyrics here, all right, it's a song by Ed Sheeran called Eraser. All right, I, mean, I love me some Ed Sheeran, and he's singing, and he's talking about, I'm like, he's singing the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I will not sing it for you, but let me read a couple of the lyrics from this book, all right, or from this song. He says, I used to think that nothing could be better than touring the world with my songs. He kind of thinking back to those days when he was dreaming of maybe making it big. I chased the perfect picture, perfect life, but he says, I think they painted it wrong. I think that money is the root of all evil and fame is hell. Relationships and hearts you fix, well, they break as well. And ain't nobody want to see you down in the dumps because you're living your dream and this should be fun. And it's sort of this reflective moment of like, I'm in pain, I'm in isolation, I'm in the darkness. This is not what it's all cracked up to be. I got what I went to get. I got this big platform. I got all these people singing my songs, filling stadiums and all of that. And at the end of the day, I feel kind of miserable. But if I go to anybody and say, man, I'm not doing well, they're going to be like, are you kidding me? Look at your life. And so now he's even in more isolation because I can't share that with anybody because they'll be like, you're nuts, you're crazy, you're living the dream, you're doing it all. And it's this moment of honest self-reflection where he's like, I know that this should be fun, but it's not, and it's not satisfying, and it's a real issue. And so the writer turns here in verse 18, look, and says, okay, in light of all this, it's sort of like we're coming up for air now. It's like, there's the problems. He's just drilling down. He's like, look at this, though. Have this perspective. Verse 18 behold what I have seen and behold is this language here of like kind of grabbing us you know kind of by the collar and be like pay attention dial in right here see this don't lose sight of this behold what I have seen to be good and fitting the language of fitting here is beautiful or right it's God's right ordering of things is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. It's not a pessimistic cynical sort of response. He's like, listen, at the end of the day, 
I want you to see a couple things. There's language that is used in these verses, and we need to see this as much as the teacher did several thousand years ago, that God is the one who gives, that every good gift comes from our Father above. You're a steward. I'm a steward. We're not owners of anything. And God is the one who gives. And so he gives us food to enjoy. He gives us drink to enjoy. He gives us relationships. He gives us experiences, entertainment. He gives us opportunities to work, even though it tells us it's toil, all right? This is Genesis 3 sort of reference that, that our work, it is cursed, all right? The things that we're going about, like sometimes it feels amazing and it brings a lot of joy and sometimes it's just a grind and it's hard and you're just like, man, is this season ever going to end? Like it feels that way. In all of it though, it's a gift from the Lord. And it's not meant to be ultimate. It's meant to actually point us back to God and to rejoice in that. And then it tells us, and I love this language here at the end of verse 20, God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Verse 20 again. For, not, for he will not much remember the days of his life. Why? Because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That there's this gift that the Lord gives in a sense of like helping us forget ourselves. And it's a constant challenge because the ego is constantly going out looking for validation. I need this. I need this from other people. I need this from my job. I need to have some sort of applause. I need these things. But the scriptures are telling us that the true joy, true fulfillment, comes through a beautiful self-forgetfulness. That God keeps us fixated, not in ourselves in a selfish way, but in a way that like we're dialed into him and what he's given and the things that change, things can come and go, whatever. But it's just like, hey, at the end of the day, like the story's not about me. And there's a beautiful, like you guys know that you've been around people that possess this and it's just like, you want to get more time with them. That doesn't mean they never get upset or never, and there's not challenges in their life, but they know the story's not about them and there's a stability there, there's a, there's a steadiness there and this enjoyment's what we all want. It comes when we stop making it about us. This enjoyment comes through self-forgetfulness. I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about this. I also hate the way C.S. Lewis talks about this because every time I read this quote, I'm like, oh gosh, I'm just gonna go sit down right now. I'm done, right? But look at this quote. It says, in fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, well, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? He says, the point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. He continues, in case that wasn't painful enough. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Mic drop, Lewis out, right? Like, it's like, oh my gosh. Like, just, that is so amazing and insightful and painful. It's like, oh, like, that is so true. I know in my own life, these times when I, like, even if I think I'm sort of humble, it's like, no, no, no. Like, there's things that bother me. and It's because maybe I'm not getting the recognition. I'm guessing it's the same for you. And there's this invitation here for a whole new way to live where it's not about us. We're not the center of the story. And God 
keeps us, he allows us to enjoy our days by not becoming focused on self. The call to repentance and to confession is not to rob us of joy, but to turn us away from this pathway that leads to death and devastation and isolation and darkness and ultimately hell in order to find life in him. And yet the ego, the pride, it is constantly there. So he's sort of in these moments, verse 18 to 22, or 20 is telling us, okay, like kind of come up for air, realize there's good gifts that the Lord has given. But now look at chapter 6 as we start here. It's like he's plunging us back down again. So you just get enough to kind of, <gasps> okay, and here we go again. Verse 9, now, problems. You're like, hey, didn't you do that whole section? Is that a typo? No, there's more problems, all right? And I think this is intentional by, all right, not that there were chapter 5 and chapter 6 when he wrote this, but these all flow together. It's part of the reason we have this longer section today because we couldn't figure out, like, well, how do you divide this up? Because these go together. I love the way Jesus talks about this, and I think this comes into play here as we look at these remaining verses. Luke chapter 12, verse 15 says this, and he said to them, to this crowd that's gathered, take care, like pay attention, dial in, focus on this, and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I've said this before, I think this is an incredibly helpful thing to keep in mind, hearing a sermon years ago by Tim Keller, and he talked about this particular passage, and he said, pay attention to how often when Jesus talks about wealth, money, possessions, he uses language like this, of like, dial in, pay attention, be on guard. Why? Because so many other sins, we know when we're committing them. If you're embezzling from your company, your organization, like you're well aware of that, all right? Like you rob the 7-Eleven, you're well aware of that, right? You're committing adultery, you're well aware of that. You don't look over and be like, oh, you're not my spouse. Like you are well aware of the things that are happening, but not with money, not with covetousness. It sneaks in, and so we have to be on guard. And if you're like, okay, I'll be on guard by myself. Mm-mm, not gonna cut it. Like, you need God's word. You need other people speaking into it. How's my heart doing in this? Am I being drawn into these things? All right? So he says, be on guard. So I think what we have here in chapter six is a continuation because like, he's got more to say. There's more problems. And it's another way to say, okay, I gave you a little bit of encouragement in verse 18 to 20, but now we gotta keep going. And so that's what we're gonna do. Verse one to two, it says this of chapter six. Problem number seven, someone else will actually enjoy your wealth. There is an evil that I've seen. Again, he's making the observation under the sun. And it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. He just tells us, listen, you can acquire all this sort of stuff, but you might not even find joy in it. And somebody else, a complete stranger, not part of your family, not anybody that you probably even care deeply about. Maybe you could find some joy in a a relative, a son or daughter, a cousin, aunt, uncle, somebody enjoying it. But this is a complete stranger. It's like, it's vanity. It's meaningless. It's like, what in the world's happening? It's not what I thought it would be. Verse 3 says this, the eighth problem, no one may show up for your funeral. It says this in verse 3, all right? After telling us that it's vanity, it's a grievous evil. If a man fathers, and he gives this kind of hypothetical, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. Let me just stop there for a moment. 
I mean, in that time, in that place, I mean, it's still, there's enough of an honor culture that exists here, but it was ramped up way, way more than, I mean, for somebody to pass away, I mean, it was a big deal and the amount of, like, things that would happen and be put into place and really what this is communicating, like, you can have all this, but at the end of the day, like, it's possible that people just liked you for your wealth, what you could, could give them, and maybe they fought over the inheritance, but there's a funeral service that's planned, word is put out, and nobody comes there to honor you. Nobody even shows up at your funeral because what you live for didn't ultimately matter. In the words of David Brooks in The Road to Character talking about you live for resume virtues and not eulogy virtues. And it's the great temptation of all of our lives and our hearts to just like, look at me, look what I did. And at the end of the day, like, if nobody's there, what did it even amount to? This is not the life that we want. And so he continues, problem number nine, as verse three continues, is just really hard language here, all right? He's basically going to tell us your life is no better than a stillborn child. In fact, a stillborn child is actually to be envied a bit. Look at the rest of verse three. He says, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should have lived a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, no good, do not all go to one place. And he's not making light of those that have endured the terrible hardship of a stillborn child. What he is saying is that there's something for that child to even be brought into the presence of God. They not have to deal with all of the horrible things in this world, the messiness and the brokenness, and to actually find rest. And he's like, that child is better off than, than you are. He's warning against the pursuits of thinking that this world will actually satisfy the rest that you were created for. It's what Augustine kept talking about, like our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee, until we find our rest in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then verse seven to nine, the tenth problem, which if you're wondering, keep in track, this is the last problem. Not, I mean, we could probably come up with more, but it's all I've got this morning, all right? So you will always be wanting more. Look at verse seven to nine. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Isn't it fascinating? Think about this, like, I eat so that I can go to work, all right? And I work so that I can eat, and then just repeat, and back and forth, and back and forth it goes. Like, what is going on? Is that all that there is to this life. You'll always be wanting more. It's not satisfied. Verse 8, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Sort of this wanderlust, right? Just whether it be a food or experience, it's just always like what's around the, the corner? What is going on and there's this call here to be satisfied in God and God alone the wandering of the appetite this also is vanity and a striving after the wind it's elusive it doesn't satisfy these are hard words these are difficult things they're things that like I don't want to talk about this stuff I don't want to do the work of examining my own life in this regard but God in his grace is calling us to do it because he cares deeply for us he cares deeply first and foremost for him getting his glory and part of the way that happens is when we're rightly oriented to him and how we've been designed to live and so the closing verses give us a perspective here even though they say some difficult things 
there's something beautiful that's happening in these closing verses of chapter 6 that I think help kind of shift our perspective of what God is trying to get us to see, knowing that this book is part of an overall story, all right? Like, we're kind of in the middle of it here, but we know how it plays out. We know how God enters into the story. We know how God actually provides. And so let's look at verses 10 to 12 where we get this perspective that is needed. It says this, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Verse 11, the more words, the more vanity, which is, should be every preacher's you know, verse there. The more words, the more vanity and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Now, if you're hoping for these verses to be like, okay, there's this kind of like positive big red bow on the end of it, kind of cheery. I don't think it's that. But in studying this, there are a couple scholars and commentators that made some interesting insights. They're like, hey, the language that's being used here is hearkening back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3 of how the story began. Whatever has come to be has already been named. Who's the one? Adam. He did the work of naming in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. It's calling us back to this world of how God originally intended things to be. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Well, what is man? All right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, as the curses are pronounced, it is told and reminded, again, you are, to du- you are dust, and to dust you will return. Go and read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 20, same thing, same language, this reminder that we're to dust, and to dust we will return. And it asks this question, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 answer that question for us. The purpose of man, communion with God. That's what we've been created for. This communion with God, a contentment in what God has given to you. Not a reaching for the proverbial fruit. Not an asking for more because you don't believe that God is good. It's a communion with God. You're so dialed into just his presence and a walking with the Lord that the temptations that come, you're like, no, no, no. Why would I choose that? Why would I choose the lesser thing? Right? I got filet mignon here and you want to give me a Big Mac? What are, you, what are you nuts? Like, No, it's this call here for what is better, what is true, and to find a contentment in what the Lord actually has given you. That the Lord is working all things for his good. That there's a peace there. And then with this, there's a call then to the cultivation for the glory of God. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. You're created for this communion. There's an invitation to be content. And then you're a cultivator, a co-creator, a, a, a vice regent. Like you work for the king for his glory. That's what it's driving us at. Not to make the story about us, to bring about the flourishing of the places where God has put us to inhabit. But the reality of the situation is this. We can't do that. We're too far gone. We have chosen lesser things. We have rebelled against our God and our King. We have said we're going to try and be rich on our own. And so what had to happen is the God of the universe, as Philippians 2 talks about, had to empty himself to rid himself of his riches to step down. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of God. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that though he was what? That he was rich. He possessed everything. Not just in a material sense, though it certainly includes like all possessions, all authority, all the perfect communion, everything. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. 
so that you by his poverty might become rich. He was rich yet for your sake. Let's put your name in there for a moment. You're invited into this story for your sake. Yes, for, the, for God's glory, but for, for your sake. So you could be rescued, that I could be rescued and redeemed from this horrible path that we're on, thinking that if I just get more of what I already have, somehow I'll actually be happy. And he's like, you're living the wrong way. Rest in me. He became poor. How did he become poor? He was literally stripped of everything that he had. He was whipped. He was scourged. His clothes were ripped off of him. His back was lacerated. A crown of thorns was put on his head. He was nailed to a Roman cross outside of the city. People spitting on him, mocking him, saying, oh, you're the king of kings. Like, you saved others. You can't save yourself. Absolutely. Just this abject poverty that he lived in, no home, wandering, all of these things. He became poor so that you and I, by his poverty, might become rich. That in trusting in him, all of our poverty, all of our brokenness in spirit, all of our sin flowed to Jesus. And all of his wealth, the inheritance, the riches, it flowed to us. That's what was made possible by the cross. And so I want to go back where we started in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll close with this. In light of this, now here's our invitation. As cultivators, as people invited to participate in God's work in this world. First Timothy 6, 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. And if you're like, oh, well, that's somebody else. No, it's us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, communion with God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Life comes, we experience a joy when we get to participate, like we get to be deliverers of good, not the destination, not the terminating on us. But Lord, what you've given, I'm, an, I'm a steward, I'm not an owner. I, I'm, I'm not here to remodel my hotel room. I'm here to live for you, to be in communion with you. I will get this wrong. I will repent. Your, your grace will continue to flow to me. Thank you for that. But in light of your grace, I want to live open-handed. I want to live in a way that my time, my talent, my treasure, they don't belong to me. They're for you and for your purposes. You've given me this call. I get to be in communion with you through the finished work of Jesus. I am content. In those moments when my heart is like, I need this and I need this, I can look to the cross of Jesus and be like, I, I have the Son of God. I have his inheritance. I have his righteousness. I have literally everything that I need. So any part of me that's victim, martyr, whatever, like, no, 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 that, like, Jesus was the true victim, and I get to live in his glorious grace, and I get to be a contributor. I get to be a cultivator. I get to live and steward well what God has given to me. So I want to close us in prayer. I want to ask you to take some time, quiet your, your heart, to spend some time praying. If you need people to pray with you and for you, there'll be members of our prayer team in the back, back corners. But before we continue in our service, we need to stop and just reflect and ask Holy Spirit, what do I need to confess? Where have I made it about me? And then to allow that, like sit in that for a moment. But then remember the story that you're part of, of what Jesus has done, that for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And celebrate that. And then ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? How can I contribute? How can I be a cultivator? How can I play my part? What does it look like to get further invested in the life of the church? What does it look like to not hoard your resources but to give them freely? And yes, that includes finances, 
but includes your time, your talents, abilities, willingness to be inconvenienced, all of it. You're like, no, I want to keep that to myself. Just think about it. Like Jesus didn't tithe his blood, he gave it all. And so the call for us, like we live in just a glad submission to him and actually in that space, God gets his glory and we get joy. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this book. It is incredibly challenging and complex and there are things in here that we, uh, I admit, I don't wanna always wrestle through, but I thank you that in your kindness and your grace, you give us your word and that it's living and active and for thousands of years, it's been speaking to, to your people uh, to bring about conviction through the work of your spirit, to lead us in this repentance, to remind us of your grace, of Jesus, how you entered into the story and how you invite us. You're restoring us now to be the contributors that you created us to be. May we be a church that lives for your glory, for the good of other people, and may we find joy in that. So Holy Spirit, speak to us now. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. God, would you do a work not only in our lives individually, but collectively as the church here. We love you. We need you. We commit these prayers to you now in Jesus' good name. Amen.